everyone. Good morning to all of you, wherever you are. Thanks for everybody that's been on the stage to lead us into an encounter with the living Christ. It's been a good morning so far. A morning where we feast. Quick reminder, you'll receive a link, a Zoom link, about 5 o'clock this afternoon for our event tonight with Jer Swiger around Mending the Divides. Please don't miss that. Should be a great conversation with him and all of you. All right, welcome to Ignite. Welcome to Ignite. And this is following also where your heart is. So if you're involved in a study entitled Where Your Heart Is, uh, this series will follow that. It'll be a little different. Uh, This morning, what I'd like to do is, if you're in the Where Your Heart Is study, this week you took a deep dive into the text. What I'd like to do is, is pan out or zoom out and give a, a larger canopy for us to consider these three verses. Uh, and I think you'll see how it fits together as we make our way through the text this morning. Uh, let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon given. And uh, let's uh, focus in on these, these three verses. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust or vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust or vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reading of God's Word. I don't know about you, but every now and then I think we all need a little shove in the right direction. There's a wonderful, there's a great Hebrew word called teshuva, and I've talked about it before, but teshuva is the Hebrew word for repentance, and it literally means to get a teshuva, to get a shove, to get ignited into the right direction, and it usually means a change in directions. I've, I'm headed here, now I need to shove, shuv, teshuva, in the right direction, usually more centralized and focused in on who Christ is. And, and we see this imagery all over the place if we, if we look for it. Uh, we all may have seen the amazing images of the uh, landing on Mars earlier this week. However, 20 months ago, there was an ignition and a, and a blast-off because rocket ships need to be ignited to break through our atmosphere and to make that amazing trek and journey that essentially culminated on a Mars landing that we saw this week. Our furnaces need a, a little ignition here and there. Our cars need to be ignited. Sometimes ideas need to be ignited, sometimes people need to be ignited, and even candles need to be ignited. Okay, good, it worked earlier, I was hoping it would work now. This notion of ignition, lighting the fire, warming the heart, being wary of cynicism and sarcasm, we all need it once in a while. And then it's interesting because then there's this text today, 
Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust or vermin and thieves break in to steal, but instead store up treasures for yourself in heaven where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, it's interesting when I sat down to think about this. How do we talk about this as good news? How do we talk about this in a way that ignites us and inspires us to move in a new direction or to receive a teshuva or direction or momentum or ignition into a new place? Because to me, when I read that, and most of us when we hear it, it seems like just another do this and don't do that kind of thing. And we get a lot of that in church, don't we? And these images that Jesus gives us, moth, rust, thieves, tend to awaken our imagination to the frailty of treasure in heaven. Sorry, uh, frailty of treasure on earth (laughs) and ignite us to a treasure in a different way. But what is that different way? in a way that it is received by us as hearers, as good news, and not just another do this, don't do that kind of thing. I I remember being a young man in graduate school, right out of college, living in the Midwest. This time of year, it would get cold. I love sweaters. I don't know if anybody else around here loves sweaters. Love sweaters. Have gotten rid of most of them the first few years we lived here, but kind of realized that that was an anomaly, and now I've had to pick up a few new ones coming back over the last few years. I got this cardigan sweater, a wool cardigan sweater for Christmas. I loved it, and uh, couldn't wear it enough. It just takes the chill out of the air. I put it away for the summer, pulled it out the next fall when things got a little frosty, and realized that a moth had had Thanksgiving dinner and Fourth of July dinner and Christmas dinner and it was all chewed all up and I I had to get rid of it. Bummed me out. Loved that sweater. The temporary nature of our stuff, no matter how much stock we put in it. And then rust. Many of you know I used to play uh, high school and college hockey. I coached high school hockey also. But I, there, were, there was probably 10 or 15 years where I never skated. Going through graduate school, having children, raising young f- children, hoping to just get sleep, let alone to find a couple of hours to get out and go skate in a men's league. I'll never forget the first time after 10 years I took out my skates. I loved my skates. CCM Super Tax. They were the best of the best. Laced them up like I always do. Didn't really look at the blades. Thought they were still sharp from the last time I went out and played. Remember, it was a decade earlier. Stepped onto the ice, wiped out like nobody's business. Looked at my blades, they were all rusted. Now, if you've never tried to skate with rusty skates, I'm just here to tell you right now, doesn't work. Really bummed me out. Rust has a way to remind us of the frailty of our stuff that we hold so high and dear. I have to tell you, I still lug all those skates around with me, even though I still haven't skated again for probably the last 20 years. But I have them in my garage. 
Then thieves who break in and steal remind us of the frailty of storing up treasures on earth and the stock that we put and the things that we think are so important. When I was a young boy in high school, my friend Dave Nordstrom and I, the only way we got around town at that point was we had bicycles. And I can remember one year needing a new 10-speed bike. And I didn't want just any 10-speed bike. I didn't want a cheap one. I wanted a really good one. So I saved my money like nobody's business. I started in the fall raking leaves, cutting lawns, and then the snow began to fall, and I shoveled driveways, and we had a couple really big snowfalls, and I shoveled the snow off of the roofs of homes and uh, saved my money. And by the time spring came along, I got a job at a golf course, and I caddied, saved more money, saved up $350. Now, you got to remember, this was quite a few decades ago. 350 bucks was a lot of money. I'd spent over probably six months saving up for my bicycle. Dave Nordstrom and I went on to the local bike shop and bought ourselves a bicycles. He bought some metallic orange one, and I bought this metallic blue Schwinn bike that I loved, 10-speed. We thought we were cool. We drove him over to school. One thing we forgot to buy as an accessory is a bike lock. And we decided that, oh man, we don't have a bike lock. We can't ride our bikes back home and then walk back to school and get to school on time. Let's just park our bikes right next to each other so it looks like we locked them up and everything would be cool. And when we came out of class at the end of the day, they'd still be there. Great plan, right? Until we walked out of class after school at the end of the day and we walked out to the bike rack. Our bikes were gone. Somebody had feasted on all of our hard work. Man, that really bummed me out. I learned, I learned through moth and rust and thieves that break in and steal how temporary the nature is of the supreme stock that we put into things that are important to us. It gets us thinking about our stuff. I'm sure you've got images in your own mind of similar things. It gets us thinking about our stuff, what's important, where our heart is, doesn't it? It does for me. I'd like to look at these three verses this morning as a kind of a journey, a journey into a larger canopy, a different way to understand these three verses, and hopefully they've connected with what you've studied as well in your small group. First, I'd like to look at the way of scarcity, the way of scarcity. Most of us, in our minds when we approach life and stuff and living, where we live, how we live, what we drive, what we have, most of us probably approach it as, boy, I just don't quite have enough. I just wish I had a little bit more. Or when I get this or that job, when this comes along, <laughs> then I'll have arrived. I mean, really, I don't know if I have enough right now to get by. There's always more month than there is check left at the end of the month. And we start thinking about, do I have enough? Do I have enough? How much is enough? There's never enough. I always have to make decisions and prioritize and sacrifice. 
I was reminded of this this week. I don't know if you saw this news piece. Did you see that there was a new mummy discovered with a gold tongue so that when the mummy made it to the afterlife, he would have enough riches to survive? That's the meaning of storing up treasures on earth. We never seem to have enough. Just need just a little bit more. If you want to know what it is that's important to you, just ask yourself one simple question. What do I think about getting, acquiring, accumulating, needing, wanting the most? That may be a way to test Take the temperature of the state of our heart and our soul. Well, a Wall Street columnist, Wall Street Journal columnist, wrote a book uh, about the ultra-rich in America. And I got, I got to tell you, I love this title. It was called Richistan. Richistan. R-I-C-H-I-S-T-A-N. He wrote it in 2007. And uh, William Bubar wrote about it in Feasting on the Gospels. Here's what he writes in his book. He describes the world of Gulfstream jets, huge mansions, alligator toilet seats, alligator skin toilet seats. I need to make that appropriately and abundantly clear. And then the author went and interviewed a few of these ultra-rich folks in his book, Richistan. And was startled at how much anxiety all of them had. Many of them had joined self-help groups to deal with the anxiety of not ever having enough. They were all worried about running out of money. They were all worried about feeling insecure. And then he did a survey with them and he asked, how much money would you need to feel secure? Great question, right? How much money would you need to feel secure? Those worth a million dollars said this, I need twice that amount. Those who were worth $10 million said, I need twice that amount. Check out the theme running here. Those worth $100 million said... I need twice that amount. The world of scarcity. Most of us probably tend to approach our whole lifestyle and existence as, goodness gracious, I just don't quite have enough. Maybe I need twice the amount. Jesus says, beware of storing up treasures on earth. For where your treasure is, That's where you'll find the state of your heart and your soul. And Jesus seems to be hinting at in a world of scarcity, there's only one possible conclusion as to where it might lead or where it must lead. Anxiety, don't have enough, scared to death about running out. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate. I'm not going to stand up here in front of you with a straight face and say, I haven't had all these same thoughts myself, fears and anxieties. The result, though, high anxiety. So if the way of scarcity is really a dead-end route, according to the 
book of Matthew, what might be a more appropriately abundant way to approach the tension between enough, treasure on earth, and treasure in heaven? Because to me, living in the tensions of those two is really where the good news and the gospel today is actually found and lived out. The good news of this text is less, do this and don't do that, and more. Let's find a way together through Matthew's gospel to live within the boundaries and the paradox of these two tensions, which is why I would like to give to you now perhaps a more excellent realm of God, Jesus' way. You ready? And it's going to look like a canopy over the top of these three verses. And I'd like to talk about the way of mercy that provides this canopy for us. You see, we have to remember that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience where the overarching theme within their community all the way through from the beginning to the end and even to today in their existence as a community is called the way of mercy, the way of compassion. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 in the Beatitudes, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, chesed, compassion, Now jump ahead in Matthew's gospel. Okay, so if the canopy's held up by one tent pole on our left, jump all the way towards the end of Matthew to the other tent pole of our canopy in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23, where he says in the woe section to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You tithe, but you neglect weightier matters of the law. Check this out. You'd neglect this, justice and mercy and faith. Perhaps in Matthew's gospel and in Jesus' message, the overarching canopy in a world of scarcity is less, I don't have enough, and more, how will I use what I have to be merciful? Because Jesus then goes on to state this in chapter 9, verse 13, the center of our canopy. Go and learn what this means, tells his disciples. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Notice this canopy that Matthew and Jesus just created for us in a world of scarcity. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Woe to you folks, you tithe, but you do it with a grumpy attitude. Don't neglect weightier matters like justice and mercy and faith. And then Jesus to his best friends, his 12 homies, go figure out what this really means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Perhaps a better way to read these three verses is within the context of this broader canopy that talks about mercy. 
I suggest and submit to all of us today that the way of mercy provides for us this larger canopy to help us understand what just appears to be do not do this, instead do that. Because what's more important than not doing this and doing that is why we do that. Mercy. Justice. (laughs) Faith. So this provides the canopy that drills us down to help us understand where our heart truly is. You know what the best result of this overarching canopy is? Freedom from anxiety. Freedom from sleepless nights. It gives us a whole new paradigm. A whole new way. A whole new set of eyes. A whole new set of glasses to see why we're here as a community and as individuals. So let's now take this one step further. Okay. If the way of mercy provides for us the canopy... Let's talk about, Len, you have a great word that is hard to shake, the antidote to a world of scarcity. Are you ready? Merciful abundance. Merciful abundance is the way of the people of God. Because in the way of mercy, there's always enough. When there's always enough, then we can live freely and generously with hope. We don't have to worry about what we don't have. We can focus on what we do have and how we give away within the canopy of mercy. After all, this is what Jesus is trying to point us to all the way through Matthew's Gospel. Why is this good news? Oh, it's such good news, friends. It's good news because in scarcity, in Richistan, there's never enough. But in mercy, there's always an abundance of enough to make a difference if we allow it. We're free to live in the abundance of God's gracious provision right now and to be open to the needs of other people. To be open to the needs of the world right next to us. To be open to the needs of the hurt right beside us. Merciful abundance frees us from anxiety in the world of scarcity. (laughs) And that should ignite and and inspire us to love and good deeds. After all, my friends, what does the Lord require but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God? There is so much merciful abundance in the world if we have the eyes to see, to see it. Now, many of us saw the, the scenes from Texas this week, right? Horrible. People needed help. They were cold. They didn't have food. They didn't have water. They were freezing to death. You know, you sit there and you're like, oh my goodness, glad I don't live in Texas. But really, honestly, if people of faith are living under the canopy of mercy... It hurts. What can I do? What ought I do? Well, I can continue to worry about how little I have. Richistan, the world of scarcity, 
Or I could say, wow, I've got so much. How will I, we, step in, lean in with a helping hand? I was amazed when I saw, talk about merciful, the way of merciful abundance. There was this guy somewhere in Texas, can't remember. He owned two furniture shops. You may have seen this on TV. Owned two furniture shops. Both furniture shops didn't lose power, had heat, had running water, pipes didn't break. He opened up his two furniture showrooms and allowed people to come on in and live. Are you kidding me? The world of scarcity would say, no way, man, this is going to wreck This is going to wreck my sales. I can't sell this stuff now. They're sleeping in beds I want to sell. They're spilling hot chocolate on my bedspreads and my carpeting and scratching up all my furniture and breaking my whatevers. Ah, Richestan, the world of scarcity. No, this fella, this guy understood the canopy of merciful abundance, the way of merciful abundance. And this was even, the best part of this interview was the reporter asked him, why did you do this? Which is the only question we can ask in Richistan, in a world of scarcity. His response was, I grew up going to church. I've always gone to church. And I just knew I needed to help. Is that not the greatest antidote to the world of scarcity in Richistan? The way of merciful abundance. My friends, may we struggle with merciful abundance in a world of scarcity. But Scripture also tells us if we have food on the table and shelter over our head and one outfit to wear, we are wealthy. We're wealthy. The way of merciful abundance is the way of Christ. May that ignite where our heart is this Lenten season. Amen. Let's pray. I'll just confess publicly the way of scarcity occupies a lot of my thinking. And the way of abundance, enough to be shared, is the way of following Jesus Christ. A sobering challenge, yet freeing challenge. Lead us all into the way of Jesus called merciful abundance. And all God's people said together,